you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com events. It's Film Week here on LAist 89.3. I'm Austin Cross. In this week for Larry Mantle, we are joined today by Tim Cogshell of Alt Film Guide and Cinegods.com, Christy Lemire, co-host of the Breakfast All Day YouTube and podcast series, and Charles Solomon of Animation Scoop and Animation Magazine. we got a lot to get through today, and we are going to begin with Asteroid City, the new film from writer-director Wes Anderson. Let's start with you, Tim. What did you think of Asteroids? Oh, Wes, 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 man. You look, um, Bottle Rocket is where Wes started, right? Right. Keep that movie in mind for a second. Okay. And every movie since, which I used to really enjoy, but don't anymore. Twee. I had to actually go look at the word twee to make sure it meant what I thought it meant. Quaint, sort of excessive. And, 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 and I'm sorry. His, these things are just gotten so twee I can't stand them anymore. <laughs> uh, and mostly I just want to smack these people and put them all in a, in a real movie. The thing is, it's all wonderfully well done. He's executing this thing that he does as well as he ever has. And this is another one. Asteroid City is an imaginary place. It's actually uh, the set of a play being written by Edward Norton, uh, a play that's being narrated by Brian Cranston. And even as I explain all of that, right, Brian Cranston uh, narrating a play being written by Edward Norton about this place called Asteroid City that we actually go to in this movie. And it's populated with all of these standard characters from, from West movies, Jason Schwartzman and Ali all these people doing what they do in his movies, right? It's not about anything. Not about anything at all. <laughs> Maybe grief in the, in, in the slightest sort of way. Uh, it, it, it is an interesting look at, at, at a world that never really existed in the sort of uh, desert southwest of the 1950s where they would explode these nuclear bombs and, and do all of these, these strings and, and aliens are an issue. All of that is happening in this movie, and I can't say that some of the dialogue isn't really sharp and funny the way West does his dialogue. And Jeffrey Wright has recently become a part of his uh, company. And Jeffrey Wright can do one of those long Wes Anderson uh, monologues. He can just stand there and do it. You know, the long one, slow take as the camera's moving in for five minutes, and, he, and Jeffrey Wright can just knock that monologue out. And it's mesmerizing. And then you think to yourself, what was that about? What, 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 what was, what, what, what's going on in this movie? And then you realize that you just don't care. You realize you just don't care. We're talking right now about Asteroid City. I'm Austin Cross on Film Week this week for Larry Mantle. Christy Lemire, what did you make of Asteroid City? Oh, I totally cared. And I really love this. And I thought this was a great return to form for Wes Anderson. I've been a big fan of his for a long time. Rushmore is one of my absolute favorite movies ever. I still think about it and quote it all the time. But he's been really hit and missed since then. The French Dispatch, his previous film before this, I felt like that is twee. And that is more obsessed with like the diorama of it all. A lot of his films frustratingly have been recently. But this feels like his best movie since Moonrise Kingdom in terms of the fact that within the obsessive minutia of his style, of his production design, within the gorgeously creamy pastel cinematography from Robert Yeoman, his usual DP, actual emotions do break through. The whole thing with his characters is that they are so detached and so arch and so desperately trying to connect with other people and express themselves and enjoy some semblance of humanity. Um, and that is, that's his playground there. Like the, the awkwardness, the humor of that, the heartache of that, the loneliness of that, when people are trying to connect, but they can't. Here they actually do. And that is what makes it feel like a, a great breath of fresh air compared to the last decade or so of his work. That's what made Moonrise Kingdom so lovely. That's what makes Rushmore so achingly beautiful. Mm. It is very, very funny. That that monologue that Tim's talking about, Jeffrey Wright, that's like one of the huge highlights of this because he is a great example of so many actors here who really find their way with this incredibly dense and often rapid fire mm. Dialogue. It's an incredible cast. It's a lot of his usual people besides Jason Schwartzman, Tilda Swinton is back, 
Um, Adrian Brody's very good here. Edward Norton's back. Scarlett Johansson is, is tremendous here. And yes, there is the play within the TV show, within the movie structure, which I'm sure for a lot of folks who don't love Wes Anderson, they might think it's just too cute by half. But what's interesting to me is what happens when those layers begin to crack, when you begin to see as the film goes on, the way actual human emotion breaks through. But you need the structure of the rigidity of everything prior to that for the later moments to really, really connect. Mm. I also think it's kind of a COVID metaphor because they're all trapped mm. in this place. They're all isolated. They're all suffering from this existential crisis. There's, there's, a, there's a thing in the Western town that says quarantine, a big sign that says quarantine. <laughs> they're all oh. stuck there for a reason. Mm. And uh, it doesn't feel heavy handed though in the metaphor to me i thought it was tremendous i love looking at it i love the score yeah I the was score is it. lovely you know what i'm doing mm -hmm. is i'm i'm criticizing wes anderson for making wes anderson films which is so unfair yes. for a critic to do <laughs> it's just always unfair when they do it but you know people can get on your nerves after a while and the thing of it is remember i said remember bottle rocket right think about bottle rocket that movie's not twee at all that's his first film that movie is flat out vicious uh, it is a dead bang, straight ahead, uh, you know, thriller. It has more in common with Blood Simple than any other Wes Anderson film, uh, Coen Brothers film from a thousand years ago. Uh, so I don't know. I, I don't know that he's necessarily doing what he does uh, uh, rather than doing what he has come to do. The film is Asteroid City. It is in wide release and it is rated PG-13. Features really an all-star cast. The next film is Elemental. It follows Ember and Wade in a city where fire, water, land, and air residents all live together. Charles Solomon of Animation Scoop and Animation Magazine. What did you think? Well, with that introduction, um, this is a good B-plus Pixar movie. All the elements are there for a great film, but they just need some re a little bit of rejiggering and reconfiguring and trimming. Uh, because Peter Sohn, very talented director, is presenting both the Romeo and Juliet story, Ember is from the fire people, Wade is from the water, uh, lots of fun playing with different physical differences and characteristics and the, the parts of the city they live in. Uh, but he's also telling the immigrant story where her parents uh, escaped from the country they had lived in that had undergone a great disaster and they've been building a life and everything is built around her and their expectations of her. Fine, but it's, again, there's a little bit too much of everything. You know, there's a limited number of times we need to see her father cough and recognize that he's growing old. And the very elaborate city, which has reminded some people, I think, with good reason of Zootopia, is just bigger and more complex than it needs to be. The fact that you can build 200 towers in the background of the software program doesn't mean you necessarily should. Uh, and if the film were a little less repetitious and a little more tightly focused, um, I think it really would have been an extraordinary film. As it is, it's a good film that I liked, but as much as I wanted to, I didn't love. Liked but didn't love. We're talking about Elemental. Christy Lemire, co-host of the Breakfast All Day YouTube and podcast series. What did you think of Elemental? I liked it quite a bit too, yeah. And to Charles's point about the city being too big and too sprawling, I think that's intentional because it's meant to feel like here's a place that should be full of promise and opportunity. But for these immigrants, they are stuck in their part of town and they're never going to feel welcome or accepted or even safe there. It's very unwelcoming to them. So I think that the enormity of that is, in, is intentional as a contrast with the reality of their daily life. Um, yeah, I did not have a whole lot of high hopes for this. It, from the ads, from the billboards, the character design didn't look great. But then watching it in the theater, oh, it's beautiful. Oh, it's so subtle and supple. Like the translucent nature of Wade and all the water creatures and the the way there's like a, a halo of shimmering heat coming off of the fire people. Like it's, the details of it are really beautiful. And uh, the two actors playing them, Leah Lewis and Mamadou Ati have a really nice chemistry with each other. Um, I laughed quite a bit. Yes, it is about racism. Yes, it is about prejudice, and it's not terribly subtle in its messaging. But 
maybe it doesn't need to be, you know, I think to, to get through to, to people, no matter what age they are, I think you, you need, people need to hear this message still, unfortunately, given the world that we live in. And so why not tell it in a beautiful, colorful way like this? Yeah, I, I dug the production design, the, the high-rise building where Wade's wealthy family lives, like it's really cool, kind of like mid-century modern, like the details are all quite beautiful. So I enjoyed quite a bit of it. And there's a short beforehand, there's an up-themed short beforehand with Carl and Doug that made me cry, like within a split second, it made me cry. Up is so good for that. You need a good cry. <laughs> Just watch the beginning of Up. But this is a, a lovely um, revisit to those characters. So yeah, I, I very well. much agree with you, Christy, about the short. It's charming and it's gentle and it's elegiac. The one thing that surprised me about it that was how much I missed Russell and wished he had been on hand. But the Aww, dialogue... He's got Boy Scout stuff to do. He's busy. <laughs> <laughs> he's getting another badge. <laughs> the movie is elemental. It is in wide release, and it is rated PG. Our next film up is The Flash. Barry Allen uses his super speed to change the past. Christy, let's kick, keep with you. What did you make of The Flash? Okay, so I'm going to try really hard not to spoil because for the people who care deeply about this, there is great consternation about even the slightest spoiler. Right. In our review on our YouTube channel, people are like, WTF, she said it wasn't going to be any spoilers. And like, I don't know what we spoiled. But anyway, I'll try to be very, very careful here putting that out there. So Barry Allen is the Flash. He is part of the Justice League, but he feels like he's on the junior varsity squad because... Batman gets to do all the cool stuff, like thwart bank robberies and whatnot. This is Ben Affleck as Batman. And so what he finds in trying and, and struggling and straining to prove himself is that he can run so fast that he can travel through time. And he realizes, oh, if I can go back in time, I can prevent my mom's murder and I can prevent my father from being wrongly imprisoned for it. Mm. And so he keeps going back in time to try to fix that. When he does that, though, of course, you can't time travel and have it all be awesome. Bad things always happen. He encounters a younger version of himself. And so is Ezra Miller playing opposite themselves in two different timelines, two different versions of, of Barry. And... That was actually really enjoyable. I know there's been a lot of behind the scenes stuff with Ezra Miller and their legal troubles and their mental illness issues. And that's been kind of a shadow on this film and on the promotion of it and all. But, you know, they're actually the best part of this. Those visual effects are quite seamless. Where the visual effects get really murky and really ugly is as the film goes on, especially in the big climax with... Um, various versions of various characters, it just looks terrible. It's just like this murky swirl of color and light and, and dirt. Um, among the various versions of people is you get Michael Keaton also as Batman, which I was pretty psyched for. I'm 50, Michael Keaton's my Batman, you know, <laughs> when I was in Mine's high school. Too. <laughs> right, I love Michael Keaton. It's cool to see him back in that suit. Um, it's kind of cool to see what that character has been up to. But as is the case with so much of this movie, it just feels like, huh, huh? Here's a thing you like. Look, there's his Batmobile. <laughs> there's the Danny Elfman score for that kind of Batman. And so much of it feels like, here's the thing you know, and here's the thing you know, and here's the thing you know. Michael Shannon comes back as General Zod and does nothing but like stand there with a helmet. Um, and then you have Supergirl, you have Sasha Kaye as Supergirl, and she's kind of a dud. So I'm very mixed on this. You know, it's, it's funny here and there. The thing with the Speed Force can be cool, the whole like point of him, you know, fixing things and tweaking things and his speed of light. Um, but overall, this is kind of a mess. Mm. We're talking about the Flash, Tim Cogcho. What did you think? You know, I'm a big Flash fan, ridiculous Flash fan. Uh, he's my number one superhero that I love, which is can, wow. which can be problematic because you know we're picky. Uh, and I've had me a fabulous Flash for a long time, Grant Gustin, over on the television show, which has been on for almost a decade now. Uh, and before him, John Wesley Shipp, who played the Flash in that 1990s series, uh, which I did a little bit of work on, and he was great as the Flash. So we Flash fans have a Flash. <laughs> He's solid. <laughs> Doesn't cause any trouble for anybody. And then we got this guy. 
uh, them uh, playing the Flash. So you have to give me a reason uh, to take my love of the Flash and invest in this person with these issues around his life and give him my love of the Flash. I, I gotta have, have to want to do that. And this movie is well made, well executed in a whole bunch of different ways. The, the Muschietti's uh, family uh, producing, directing, producing uh, this film. Looks pretty good most of the time. My favorite character in the movie is Michael Keaton. Uh, but this movie, I don't need this movie. I got me a flash, and he's solid. Don't need this guy. Don't need it. You got a flash. I'm Austin Cross in this week on Film Week for Larry Mantle. We are back, and when we come back, the blackening, Stan Lee, Blue Jean, all on the docket. Stick around. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Ghost Waltz by Oliver Mayer, a bold original recovery of Juventino Rosas, one of Mexico's most significant composers. Follow Rosas from his father's early death to his friendship with ragtime genius Scott Joplin, now on stage through June 2nd. Tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. It's Film Week here on LAS 89.3. I'm Austin Cross in for Larry Mantle. We're joined this week by Tim Cogshell of Alt Film Guide and Synagogues.com, Christy Lemire, co-host of the Breakfast All Day YouTube and Podcast series, and Charles Solomon of Animation Scoop and Animation Magazine. We continue our conversation with The Blackening. Tim, what did you make of it? Well, this is a very solid satire right from its title, The Blackening. Tim's story over here, uh, Barbershop and so many other great films uh, that black folks love. Um, look, this film uh, is taking on the very fraught relationship that African Americans have with the slasher film. With all horror films, but with the slasher film. You Look, look it goes like this. Uh, if a black person is in a slasher film, they are going to die first or worst or both. Mm, right. Uh, that's pretty much the way that goes, and we've been thinking about it for about for now on the 50 years. So um, these folks are taking all of those tropes regarding African Americans, black folks, and slasher films and putting them right in front of everybody's face. One of the first one is uh, it's a Juneteenth celebration. These seven college roommates, uh, former roommates, are going to go out to this cabin in the woods, a remote cabin in the woods. And, of course, everybody says, well, who picked this? <laughs> Excuse me, aren't we all black? Black people don't go to remote cabin. Yeah, there they are, this remote cabin. It's absolutely hysterical every time somebody points it out. And it's funny for all of the layered reasons that, that, that black folk, African Americans, know it's funny. For one thing, black, lots of black folks have cabins in the woods. We own cabins in the woods. So it's, it's funny in, on, on many, many layers. And this movie knows that, and it tries to exploit all of them as it forces these characters into playing this game uh, that's represented by this, what used to be called a Sambo caricature mm. that Tell, ask them the question, you want to play? Like Chucky, you know? And right. then all of these sort of horror movie tropes are, are placed in front of these black folks, and they have to figure out how, when forced into the situation, they're going to deal with these things. And, 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 and beat by beat, it's pretty funny. Some jokes are funnier than others, but if you're sitting there and you're watching this movie and you're African-American and you've been thinking about all of these things for, you know, like 50 years like I have, you cannot help but giggle every five seconds. The movie is The Blackening. It is a comedy horror thriller, wide release, rated R. Stan Lee focuses on Stan Lee's life for more people who will learn about the man behind the Marvel Universe. Charles Solomon, what did you make of it? Well, this is very much a love letter to Lee. It's affectionate. It's warm. They found lots of old interviews with him going back for decades. I wish that I, they had identified when more of the uh, interviews were from. Um Again, very upbeat, very favorable. 
there's some weird things in it, though, like when they don't have any stock footage or footage of him to put in. They've got these little miniatures that they shoot that look like the wax figures you'd put on a little kid's birthday cake. Hmm. And I'm not sure why. Uh, it also kind of starts and stops in some places. He gets married right after World War II. He's madly in love with his wife. They have a daughter. They're very happy. And then she disappears, although she lived to be 95, and apparently they stayed happily married. Um, my other problem with it is that towards the end, it kind of reminds us that, yeah, this is from Disney, who has the Marvel franchise. And we see lots of cameos and lots of Stan Lee with all the different actors and all the different movies. And it starts to feel a little... Um, Product placement, perhaps. Mm -hmm. But if you like Stan Lee, uh, you'll be ecstatic. Tim Cogshaw, what do you think? Yeah, not, not exactly cradle to grade, but, but it starts at the cradle. Uh, Stan was born in 1922, and we started in 1922. As it happens, uh, the folks around his neighborhood had cameras, and a lot of them liked taking pictures of a baby Stan Lee. So we have images of very, very, very young Stan Lee as almost, not only, but, but almost the only voice we hear in this movie is Stan Lee's. Uh, talking either in interviews or in a voiceover from an interview with him. And every now and again, another voice comes in, including that interesting little fight that he got in with, J uh, with Jack Kirby uh -huh. on that radio and program. And with Steve Ditko. And with Steve Ditko, because, you know, there were some issues there. Th those are in the film. I, I appreciate that the filmmakers allowed that information to the film. There were issues, authorship, who did this, who did what, that are in the movie. But this is a film made by people who love Stan Lee, as many of us do. Uh, and, and Stan Lee comes off in this film as a jovial uh, character that most people seem to have loved most of his life. Um, if you want to know why, uh, why Peter Parker is bananas about Mary Jane uh, in Spider-Man, it's because Mary Jane is Joan Lee, and Stan Lee was nuts about Joan Lee. Christy Lemire, what do you think? Yeah, it's totally an infomercial for Stan Lee and for Marvel, but he's such an engaging and charming raconteur that, like, you don't mind. Like, you want to spend all that time with him, hearing him tell these stories. And he's, you know, throughout his entire life, we have, there's a, a wealth of interview footage. And so uh, it's a lot of fun to see him throughout his his various incarnations. And, and to remember that before there was this obsessive Marvel fandom, he was doing some really groundbreaking work in terms of trying to depict superheroes as flawed, as complicated, as human, insisting that Peter Parker needed to be a teenager. You know, that's part of what the charm is that we see now in like the Tobey Maguire, especially the Tom Holland incarnations of that character. But like the fact that he wanted them to be recognizably human was kind of exciting back then compared to the DC characters for whom so much was so black and white, so good versus evil. So that's all cool. Yeah, the little beef with uh, with Steve Ditko and Jack Kirby is is an interesting little nugget, but this is not in any way like a wart and all depiction of, of Stan Lee. It is all still product, but very enjoyable product. Stan Lee is a documentary streaming on Disney+. Plus. It is unrated. And Christy, we'll keep with you as we move on to Blue Jean, which is about a closeted teacher who's pushed to the brink. What did you make of Blue Jean? It's very good. Yeah, it's really understated and, uh, and feels very lived in in its 1980s Northern England setting. Um, Rosie McEwen is very good as a high school English teacher who is a closeted lesbian. This is a time in England in which, you know, Margaret Thatcher is in charge and you're seeing crackdowns on homosexual activity. And so she's understandably very afraid of being outed. She has a girlfriend who is very out. She's a very butch lesbian. And she has these friends who are very rowdy and raucous and, you know, they're very comfortable in who they are. She is always a little trepidatious. And so the, the subtlety that you see in Rosie McEwen's performance, you know, it has to fluctuate depending on what situation she's in. Like she's in command as a PE teacher in this high school, but you can tell like not always entirely certain of herself. With her girlfriend and her female friends, there's a little more joy there, but she's never quite free to loosen up there either. And so it's about her journey of figuring out who she is and how to express that. And that the the thing that is the conduit for that is this young student, this new high school student who comes in who is a lesbian herself and who forces her to 
to learn how to live her truth. And so it, it's really well acted and really subtle and has a very rich sense of place. Tim Cogcha, what do you think? Yeah, and it's that setting in 1988 in Margaret Thatcher's uh, UK, which here in the, in, in the States, that was Ronald Reagan and the Mormon Georgia right. and all of that. There was a sort of equivalent thing going on in the UK at that time uh, that we weren't necessarily aware of. That young woman who comes into her PE class, uh, she, she runs across that young woman at a gay bar. Now, this is funny because they sort of do that thing when you see each other. And I'm thinking to myself, well, this should work out because you're not supposed to be in this gay bar, <laughs> you know, 17-year-old, uh, and, and nobody knows I'm gay. This should work out. Um, what I like is that this movie does not go where it might, where it might ordinarily have with a scenario like that, very young. No, no, it walks, it walks right. a more narrow and more human path, and I like that a lot. It is Blue Jean. It is a foreign drama from the U.K., and it's showing right now at Landmark's New Art Theater in West L.A. The movie is unrated. Let's move now to Lonely Castle in the Mirror. Charles Solomon, what do you think? Well, Keiichi Hara is one of the more interesting directors working in Japan in animation. He did um, Colorful about teenage suicide and Miss Hokusai about the daughter of the great printmaker that were both excellent films uh, this is a couple notches down, I'm afraid, and many of the problems go back to uh, Mizuki Tsujimoto's original novel. It deals with bullying, which is a very serious problem in Japanese schools. More than 600,000 incidents were reported to the Ministry of Education uh, in 2021, many of which led to kids just dropping out of school and in some cases even committing suicide. And Kokoro, the heroine of the film, has just refused to go to school after being bullied by her classmates. Then she goes to this castle. She enters through a mirror like Alice through the looking glass, where she and several other kids are all trying to make sense of their bullied lives. And the two real problems it has is that she's not terribly sympathetic until maybe the very end. They're on this enormous quest to find a key that will lead them to a room where they will have any wish granted, and her wish is for the girl who bullied her to vanish off the face of the earth. Mm. Not the most likable. Second, towards the end of the film, and this is a problem with the novel, the focus suddenly switches to another character, and he's the one who sort of resolves everything, and it's it's just not as all it could be and not all that you expect from um, a Kiyuchihara film. The film is Lonely Castle in the Mirror. It is a foreign film. It's from Japan. It's an animation, and you can see it in Japanese with English subtitles. It's also dubbed in English. We're going to speed it up so we can get more of these films in for you. Let's go to Surrounded. And, Tim, what do you think? Well, Surrounded, Letitia Wright. When we first meet Letitia Wright in this film, she's playing a character called Mo, who's supposed to be a man. We have to believe that all of the people in the film believe that she's a man, that this character is a man. Uh, uh, and you know what? They would. Uh, Letitia is playing it. She's very slender. She's wearing this hat. Those folks would have bought that was a young male. Uh, a young man who uh, fought in the uh, the Civil War and now has this claim to a stake out west, and he's going out stake to, to do his claim. He gets on the stage coast. All kinds of nutty things happen. They get attacked by, and there he is, alone with Jamie Bell, this outlaw chained to a tree. He's got to watch Jamie Bell mm. while the sheriff goes off and gets somebody to come back and take care of the situation. Man, we're going to have ourselves a rip-roaring cowboy movie here. Now, this movie is more John Ford than Sergio Leone in that the characters talk too much. Uh, uh, <laughs> love me some John Ford, but they talk too much over there. Sergio Leone, and the characters didn't talk so much. If it had been a little bit more Sergio and a little less John, it would have been an even better movie. Let's move to Black Clover, Sword of Wizard King Charles. What do you think? This is a very popular uh, wizard fantasy series. It sold 19 million books from the manga. It's reportedly a favorite of Otani's. Uh, this is, though, pretty much a standard issue anime fantasy uh, battle sequence. You would think wizards would learn to stop sealing away their opponents because like the envelope for the, the check I have to send to American Express every so often, it never stays sealed. <laughs> and so Conrad reemerges, and um, uh, Asta, the main character, has to battle him. It's basically one long battle with a few pauses to breathe and for the characters to talk. If you love the series or if you liked Bleach or Naruto or Fairy Tale, uh, you'll have lots and lots of fun with it. If you haven't been following it, you'll probably be lost. But for anime fans, this 
pulls out all the stops. It's Black Clover, Sword of the Wizard King. It is streaming on Netflix. It is unrated. Let's move to Extraction 2, Tim. Extraction was the movie before Extraction 2. This movie picks up right where that movie left off, right? Literally where it left off. Our guy, uh, uh, Tyler, is being taken to the hospital. He just went through a heck of a thing if you saw that first movie. He's beat up real bad. And we watch him go through a little bit of rehab here. And so, you know, He's about halfway through rehab when his people come to him and say, we need you again. we got to do another extraction, too. And so he has to go do this extraction. Uh, this time it's in a prison and uh, I don't know where it is. And it's just a nutty movie that's just like that first movie. If you love the way that first movie was constructed and it's just a, a knockdown bang fest. It's like John Wick only without the bulletproof suits. A little bit ever so, ever so slightly more realistic than that. And he's going to extract uh, this family from this prison and get them back to the United States. And it's a tough road to hoe. We're going to try to squeeze in one more with just about a minute left. Anchorage, Tim, you want to take that one for us? You know Tim? what? This is a two-hander. These the, the two characters in this film, and there are only two, these two young men. Uh, one of them is the writer. The other one is the director, and they're both the leads of this film. They're brothers. They got this, this stash of drugs in the trunk, and they're going to try to drive these drugs from the southwest up to Anchorage, Alaska. But these two guys are irritating. Uh, these two guys are <laughs> terrible. Uh, these two guys you don't like, but that's what makes this movie all the better. You don't like either one of these guys, but these two brothers are nuts about each other, and they're going to take care of each other until they don't. Until they don't. The film is Anchorage. It is a drama. It's playing at the Limley NoHo 7, and it is on rated i think we can get in a 30 second review on pretty red dress if you want to try tim interesting film that's getting a lot of reviews it's about this young man who gets out of prison we see him get out of prison he goes home to his family his girlfriend and his daughter and for reasons that's not that are not quite clear to me he has a fetish for wearing dresses uh, his, his, his girlfriend has this particularly fantastic sort of Tina Turner red shimmy number. I can almost see why anybody would want to put this thing on, but <laughs> he has a fe- and it's going to cause issues in the family. The movie is about acceptance. It is Pretty Red Dress. It is available on digital on-demand platforms. I'm Austin Cross. This is Film Week. Stick around. When we come back, I'm going to talk to Eva Longoria. Her new film is Flamin' Hot. Thanks for staying with us. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Ghost Waltz by Oliver Mayer, a bold original recovery of Juventino Rosas, one of Mexico's most significant composers. Follow Rosas from his father's early death to his friendship with ragtime genius Scott Joplin, now on stage through June 2nd. Tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. Alayist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAist.com events. Welcome back to Film Week. I'm Austin Cross. Hit up the snack aisle in just about any store these days, and you are bound to see all different kinds of flaming hot products, from potato chips to popcorn, and of course, the one that started it all Cheetos Flamin' Hot. The origin story of these wildly popular snacks and the man who says he invented them are the subject of the new film, Flamin' Hot. The film is directed by Eva Longoria, making her directorial debut, best known for her role as Gabrielle Solis on TV's Desperate Housewives. She's also a successful producer, businesswoman, she's authored a cookbook, and now she adds director to her resume. I spoke with Eva about the film and the Southern California story that inspired it. Well, there's so much to like about this story, Eva. And personally, I grew up in Rancho Cucamonga around the time that this was happening. So it was really cool to learn about the history that was happening at the factory that was just down the street from my house. I want to just start off by asking, what drew you to the script when you first read it? 
Oh man, so many things. First of all, I read the script and I didn't know the story of Richard Montañez. And I was like, this is amazing. How did I not know this? He's Mexican-American. I'm Mexican-American. And uh, and I just thought there was so much to learn from his journey uh, in life. Like, uh, you know, all the adversity he faced and how he faced it with dignity and grace. And I was just like, I, I need to direct this movie. And so I threw my hat in the ring and the rest is history. <laughs> so Richard Montañez in this story is played in the film by Jesse Garcia. I'm wondering, how did you work with Jesse to get him to capture, you know, the essence of such a charismatic guy? He is charismatic. Jesse Garcia has been in this business over 20 years. I mean, he's a very well-established actor. He's just never had an opportunity like this to showcase his beautiful talent and his spectrum and his range of emotions. And, um, you know, we don't get a lot of roles like this as, as Latino actors. So he had to play four different decades. He had to be funny. He had to be vulnerable. He had to be tough. He had to be smart. He had to be witty. I mean, it was it was a really big task. And he's portraying somebody who's still alive. And so um, I just, Jesse was the only person that could have done this role. I mean, he was he was perfect for it and he had all the gears and uh, and he he took it on as seriously as I did. You know, I I really felt the weight of our community behind us and with us. Um, we had to get it right. And he equally felt that. And you, you talk about your community. And so I do want to point out, because a lot of people don't know that, you know, you hold a master's degree in Chicano studies, which is something that I learned about you. But you also work through your organization to really uplift you know people from your community, Latina girls specifically, to help give them opportunities. Uh, I'm wondering, in this sense, I'd imagine when you made this movie, you're making it for somebody who doesn't see a lot of people who look like Jesse Garcia out there. Oh, 100%. I mean, you know, we were trying to think of the last major studio film that was made by a Lati by by us and for us uh, Latinos. And it was about 20 years ago. It was Chasing Poppy 20, 20 years ago. ago. Yeah. And we were like, we can't get a movie every 20 years. Like, this isn't, you know, this is important. We get it right. Because what happens is if it doesn't have economic success, if, if our audience doesn't show up and say, hey, you know, we want more content like this, then studios go, okay, well, we tried that Latin thing one time, it didn't work. So let's just go back to what we know. Um, you know, we, we tried hiring that female filmmaker once it didn't go that well. So let's just stick to what we know. And then they just continue to tap the same well of talent they always tap into. Um, and I was, I just, we definitely felt that pressure to represent and, and to make the best movie possible. And I'm just so excited that we've, um, that we've, you know, it's landing, that the movie's landing with so many people with the intention of which we made it, which is uh, be inspired and uh, be uplifted and see yourself reflected back on screen. And the response has been amazing. This is Film Week. I'm Austin Cross, and I'm talking right now with Eva Longoria, who's made her directorial debut with the film Flamin' Hot, which tells the story of Richard Montañez, played in the film by Jesse Garcia. I'm wondering how closely you worked with the original Richard Montañez, Eva, and what stood out to you about his personality that you really knew that you needed to capture as you worked on the script and as you directed the various scenes of the movie? Um, I, um, definitely worked very closely with Richard and Judy to tell their story. Um, uh, we worked off two memoirs he had written already, um, but also mostly conversations with them and, um, their lives are fascinating. And, you know, specifically, you know, Richard shouldn't be alive, much less successful with the childhood and upbringing that he had. And so to see him overcome all of that and not only survive it, but thrive in spite of it is pretty inspirational. Well, I have to say, when you're having him tell the story and he's talking about, say, you know, former PepsiCo CEO Roger Enrico, and he's retelling what's happening in the boardroom, but he's kind of yeah. he's he's saying it in his own way. And then he kind of translates it for everybody who maybe wasn't following. Uh, that's just such an interesting character that you're you're pulling out there, right? Like this guy, I hear about it, and I'm like, oh, this is the sort of guy you'd want to get a beer with. Like he's got such a, an animated way of telling stories. Was he like that in real life? 
Oh my gosh. He was a lot. Those fantasy sequences came out of, uh, uh, me putting the movie in Richard's perspective. Um, this is, we're totally in his mind, in his memory. And so he is the narrator of his own film. And through many stories, you know, he he told us a story like, man, I thought, I didn't know what a boardroom was. I thought it was a room they kept boards in. <laughs> um, or he said, you know, I, there's this guy that was really mean to me and I wanted to kick his but I, of course I didn't. And so for me in the movie, I was like, but what if you did? Like, what if we did a fantasy sequence where everything is as it seems in Richard's head? And uh, and they came up, they, they really landed very well. And it was, uh, these fantasy sequences was a device I, I really wanted to use to hit home points and, and make some statements, you know, that, that I needed to make. You mentioned Richard's wife, Judy, who's played by Annie Gonzalez in the film, and she plays a major role in the development of his character. And you can see the chemistry that they had in the film. She really believes in his vision when no one else will. She encourages him to keep going when he wants to give up. And before I ask you about that, I actually want to play a clip from the film that gets at this dynamic and in this scene, Richard Montañez, played by Jesse Garcia, doubts himself as he's preparing for his pitch meeting with PepsiCo CEO Roger Enrico, who's played by Tony Shalhoub. Uh, that's where he's going to show them his flaming hot Cheetos for the first time. So let's listen to that. They're scared. Scared of what you can do for them. Scared that they've been begging for help and they got a broke Mexican kid from Huasti as their hero. They don't know what to do with that. Baby, do you know what I've been praying for all these years? That you would see the gifts and talents that you have. Baby, use your gifts. Be great. Enrico is coming to hear you speak. Do not let these sinvergüenza stop you. I, I don't even know how to do a sales presentation. Well, guess what? We're going to find out. That was a clip from Flamin' Hot, directed by Eva Longoria, who joins me right now. And Eva, you said in interviews that the character of Judy wasn't actually in the original script, but then something changed when you met the real Richard and Judy Montañez. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, we um, we you know sat with Richard and Judy, and we realized, oh my gosh, this is a love story. Like Judy's like so important in his trajectory of success. So for me, yeah, I knew it was a love story. And Judy is front and center uh, in his life, in real life and and in the film. And she really is the heartbeat, the heartbeat of the film. And for Latinas, like we don't get to see these roles very much um, on camera. We're usually like the girlfriend of or like, you know, some sort of side character that doesn't really have an arc. Um, and so it's nice to see the Latinas I know in my life uh, represented and reflected back at us. You're listening to my conversation with Eva Longoria on her new film, Flamin' Hot, which marks her feature directorial debut. It is now streaming on Hulu and Disney+. Plus. More of our conversation when we come back in just one minute. Welcome back to Film Week. I'm Austin Cross in for Larry Mantle. Let's get right back to my conversation with director Eva Longoria about her new film, Flame and Hot. We're talking about the character of Judy Montañez. You know, she played such a strong character, and yet what you also got at in the film was this, this kind of dynamic around him, especially before he really started to take off in his career where his friends were telling him, you know, you're going to let your woman handle things. You're going to let her be in the lead of things, uh, which honestly, you know, to people who come from outside of a, a culture like that, they might think, oh, your people actually still think about it. But you were really tapping into a dynamic that's still very much alive and well in certain Latino communities, right? There was a certain machismo that was playing out. And yet, you know, she was there. She was there to tell off his father uh, for him when his father was coming at him. 
I mean, as, as you thought about that, was there any part of that character that was inspired by, you know, anybody who you've known in your life? Oh, yeah. I mean, everybody in my family is like Judy. You know, we are, we are uh, you know, soft and loving, but we are definitely the force to be reckoned with in the household. And so <laughs> you know, Judy is my mom. Judy's my aunt. Judy's my sister. I am Judy. And definitely, like I said, this was finally an accurate portrayal of what Latinas look like in the world. And I wonder if that's something that you set out to do, because you mentioned the last time that there was a film anywhere near this was Chasing Poppy. And if I remember, it was the situation where, you know, the characters did go through an evolution, but at first they were all kind of chasing this one guy. And, and, yeah. and so there's this image of women in film where it's like, yeah, the woman is chasing the guy and that's her M.O. And you kind of flip that on its head here where you, you put Richard with a wife who wasn't taking anything from anybody. So I'm like, I'd imagine you came from a, a background where you had a lot to draw from. Yeah, I mean, this was, I knew this was going to be my superpower, um, was knowing my community. I think the more authentic and specific you are to a story, the broader the appeal. It's a very interesting uh, dynamic because I know we keep talking about Latino representation and Latinos, but this is a universal story. Everybody right. in the world is falling in love with this story. We were talking, they did an international press day and it was Spain, France, Italy, Germany, um, Ireland. Everybody's crazy for this story. And they said, wow, it's like a success story. It's a rags to riches story. It's perseverance. It's the underdog. And so, you know, you don't have to be Latino to to relate. But I do think the more specific I was, the broader the reach. Uh, what was it that you knew when you read the story, when you found out about it, that you knew that you could bring to it that, you know, maybe other people couldn't bring to it? What was it that you were aiming to to, to bring to this conversation, to this movie? I really wanted to explore that opportunity is not distributed equally. Talent is. Anybody can have an idea. Anybody can have talent. But do you have the infrastructure around you that can lead you to success? And that infrastructure is often not in our neighborhoods and our communities. And so, you know, when somebody keeps telling Richard, no, ideas don't come from people like you. No, you know, that opportunity isn't for some guy like you. He dares to ask, but why not me? And I think that's where everybody's inspired. It's like, wow, you know, he he broke protocol, not even knowing there was protocol. And so that naivete is sometimes a superpower. I understand that you grew up in Texas and you grew up in a predominantly Latino community. Uh, and then you switched schools at some point. I believe you took a, a gate test and then you ended up going to see a different community. Is that one of the earliest points in your life where you can recall where this sort of opportunity gap that you're talking about, the, the thing that stood out to you in the story uh, became clear to you in real life? It was out of my out of my neighborhood. Yeah, I thought everybody was Mexican um, <laughs> because I grew up in a Mexican neighborhood. And, um, I, you know, I, I had to I passed into this gifted and talented school that was across town and I had to get bus there. And I remember getting on the bus with my bean taco that I ate every day for breakfast, which I still eat every day for breakfast. <laughs> um, and I get on the bus with my bean taco and everybody has a pop tart. And I was like, what is that? And they were like, what's that? And I was like a bean taco. Don't we all eat bean tacos? And, uh, and then I remember a little girl whispering, she's Mexican. And I thought it's, what's that? Like, I didn't, I didn't really understand uh, what it meant. Um, and I was like, why is that a bad thing? Is she saying it is a bad thing? And uh, yeah, so it was finally, I was like, oh, I'm different. Okay. And then I would go to Mexico all the time and I would come back crossing the border and I would say U.S. citizen and I'd get right in. I thought it was like a a secret password only we knew, you know, I was like, why don't those people in that line just say the password, you know? And so then I was like, I would go to Mexico and people there would go, oh, you're American. And I go, no, 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 I think I'm Mexican, you know? And I was so confused for so long and then finally realized, oh, I'm both. I am Mexican American and I'm a hundred percent at the same time. This is Film Week. I'm Austin Cross. I'm talking right now with Eva Longoria, who made her directorial debut with the movie Flame and Hot, which tells the story of Richard Montañez. There's a little bit of controversy surrounding its accuracy or the accuracy of Richard Montañez's original story. I'm sure you're familiar with the 
2021 investigation published by the LA Times in which they cite interviews with past Frito-Lay employees and company records that dispute his version of events. And I'm wondering how you found out about all of that, you know, change and maybe if it changed the way that you approached the film. No, it never it never had any effect on the film. We were never telling, you know, the documentary of the Flaming Hot Gito. We were I was committed to telling Richard Montañez's story. Um, although Pepsi defended Richard, Pepsi came out with a lengthy statement, you know, and really defending um Richard and saying he absolutely is responsible for the success of this of this brand. They don't credit the chemist, the food chemist uh, job to him, but they definitely credit the success of launching it to Richard Montañez. You know, he he did a lot with this amazing company and reached top level executive. So I don't think you do that because you didn't do anything. As a director making your directorial debut, uh, did you find your experience as an actor impacted the way that you directed? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, me being in front of the camera, I am definitely articulate in how to communicate with actors. And this was a strong character piece. This this needed, you know, somebody who understands um, the nuances of building character um, behind the camera for sure. And because I'm I'm a director and I'm an actor, I, I kind of sit right in the middle of producing, you know, because I, I, I understand all of the the things that we need to get done, making budget, you know, building sets, you know, keeping schedule, which is a producer's job. But I also understand the work that we need to do in order to get performances and the time we need to get the shots and the uh, elasticity we need with the schedule. So it's like I'm always right in the middle because I understand, you know, both sides of the camera. I know when you do anything for the first time, there's always some surprises, no matter how much you prepare. What surprised you the most about directing your first feature film? That I could do it. Um, I didn't doubt I could do it. I just, at the, when I finished, I go, okay, yeah, I, I knew I could do that. And I did it. Like it was, it was surprising and not surprising at the same time. And I think, you know, just like in the movie, Judy gives Richard permission to be great. Like, go be great. Like, what are you doing? What are you waiting for? <laughs> And and for me, I gave myself permission to be great and uh, to be like, you know, what what what's wrong with you? Go do. Of course, you can do this film. That's actress, producer, and now director Eva Longoria. Flamin' Hot is available to stream on Hulu and Disney Plus. I'm Austin Cross in for Larry Mantle this week. He's back in the host chair on Monday, and you can catch me on Midday All Things Considered starting at 11 right here on LAS 89.3. Have a great weekend. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at LAS.com events. See you there. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.